George Tenet, director of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, at the beginning of the 21st century, summed up the agency's main mission in three words, we steal secrets. During the Cold War, Alan Dulles, the longest-serving CIA director, wrote that over the centuries, intelligence organizations had also shown themselves an ideal vehicle for conspiracy. This is Retrace, the 11th of September, 2020. That's from uh, the intro to Christopher Andrews' The Secret World, A History of Intelligence. Why are we reading Alan Dulles? It's a fair question. To some it might be obvious, to most probably not. Well, that excerpt from Christopher Andrew might give you a hint. An ideal vehicle for conspiracy. When did he say that? What was he talking about? What did he mean by that? That's not some guy on a podcast saying it. That's not some reporter. That's not some book author. That's the longest serving director of Central Intelligence. And basically, it's founding father. The founding father of that agency in the United States. I assume he was the longest. I think he was. I mean, this Christopher Andrews book came out in 2018, I think. So we'll, we'll take his word for it that, that, that Dulles was the longest. He didn't, didn't even make it a decade, but that's a long time, I guess, as DCI. What was he talking? Well, listen, I want to know too, but uh, we haven't been able to track down that quote, unfortunately. I'm working on it. Um, he cites, Andrew cites, a chapter in, in a book that he edited called The Missing Dimension. Uh, and and Ransom is the author, Harry, I think. Um, Harry or Henry. And he doesn't cite the source either. He, on 205 of The Missing Dimension, Alan Dulles once said that an intelligence system is an ideal, ve- ideal vehicle for conspiracy. He, you know... There it says that he said it, and, and uh, Ransom says that he said it. Uh, Dull- uh, Andrew says that he wrote it. I've written to Andrew. I haven't heard back yet. Um, and I've looked at the surrounding sources in The Missing Dimension, and I can't find – it sounds like something he would have said. I mean, I, I don't think it was in anything he wrote, but we'll see. Um, but anyway, we'll have to come back to that one. Why are we reading him, Dulles? Because hints, hints about what's going on out there. We want to know what's going on out there. He might not tell us. He might not write a book, the purpose of which is to tell the world what's going on out there. But he might drop hints, and he's definitely in a position to he's somebody with, you know, in a position of power to know, as we discussed previously, he might not have the incentive to tell us, but he has other motivations for writing, and he probably can't help himself but drop a few hints if we know how to recognize them. 
We want hints from the inside. And he is undoubtedly, he was undoubtedly from the inside or on the inside. Whatever you believe about him as a person, whether or not he was involved in the JFK thing, it doesn't matter. No one disagrees about the point that he was very well connected in the in the circles of power of his time and that, you know, that's a loose definition of being on the inside. What do we mean when we say we want to know what's going on out there? I mean, strictly speaking, knowing what's going on out there could mean anything or everything. If it means everything, you're talking about, no, was it the Laplacian, Laplacian demon? The, the, the god or creature or whatever that would that could know the position of every particle and all the rules and could predict, predict the future based on determinism. Do we want to be that? No. No, of course. Well, what, what do we mean? Maybe we haven't made it clear. We want the 5%. We want Major Murphy's 5%. The expensive information that's Essential, if not more important than the cheap 95% that is, of course, readily available. We want the 95%, the 5%. We don't, it's not that we don't want the 95%, it's just what can you do with it? What can you do with the 95%? You're Hitler, Normandy, as Major Murphy illustrated. All you can do is lose the war, is what you can do, or begin to lose the war. What's the price? You want the 5%, what's, what's the price? Who are you asking? I mean, you can't, you can't, who, who has it? It's not for sale. Well, we don't know if it's for sale. We haven't been working long enough to know whether it's for sale. But I mean, who's going to, it's not a dollar figure. It might have a dollar figure rolled in, but it's a package deal. It's a, you're going to have to pay it more than one way. It's going to be, there's going to have to be compensation. A compensation package. I would argue, I would speculate that there is no place that you could just get that 5% for, for an amount of money. Because if you had somebody who had the amount of money, let's say you're Bezos, $200 billion, depending on the share price at any given moment this year, and he wants to know what's going on out there. He wants the 5%, assuming he doesn't have it. Maybe he does. I, presumably, he's too busy <laughs> you know, inculcating his 33,000, I think it was, new white-collar staff with their ethos of frugality. He's too busy with that to look into what's really going on out there. The only thing that's going on out there to him, presumably, is his business, as it, as it should be and would be. But let's say he just, he goes to the bank, after he's taken several other steps to liquefy, or liquidate his assets, liquefy, or liquidate, <laughs> uh, and his bank balance is $200 billion. He goes to the ATM, gets out the $200 billion, which he gets to choose what denominations, of course, and he's heard something. He knows something. He knows where to go. 
This is not something you can Google. You can't go online and say, who do I go to if I can afford the 5%? No, he knows something. We don't know how he knows it. And he puts the $200 billion on the table. There, please, I want to know. It's more important to me to know what's going on out there. The 5%. That's more important to me than my billions. Give it to me. If you were on the other side of that table, you would be looking at a fool. In so many complicated ways, he's a fool. You can't buy it. And if you, if you, it, it couldn't even be for sale. So, how do you get it? Let's say, let's say it's not a fuzzy concept, this 5% of information. Let's say that you really can objectively somehow go from whatever percentage you're at right now. Maybe you've got 30%. Maybe you've got the whole 95% of cheap information, the scientist's information. The information that if you were studying a scientific problem or phenomenon would basically equate to the same percentage of what you know about that phenomenon. Whatever percentage of information or data you have, data and information are not the same thing, but let's pretend they are, about the phenomenon, that's how much you know about that thing. Let's say the same thing applied in the world of intelligence. We've been talking about strategic intelligence, but we could be talking about artificial and natural as well, and we will. Let's say it were possible to get to 100%. What, what do you, how, do you, how? How? If you could measure it, how would, you, how would you increase that number? Well, it's easy to run around reading things or talking to people or watching things and, you know, absorbing something. You're absorbing some sort of information. Presumably, it's the cheap information. Maybe it's not. Maybe you accidentally get a morsel of something that is part of the 5%, but you don't know it because... Well, you, maybe you've never even thought about the 5%. Maybe, how would you recognize it? The way you get it, we don't know. We don't have it. But the way you might get it, three things. The first thing is legwork. You're not going to sit in front of a screen or a book or a newspaper or a talking head, or your friend who never stops telling you what he knows. You're not going to sit in those positions and get this 5% that we're talking about. You're going to have to go someplace. You're going to have to do something hard, presumably. So, the first part of the price is legwork. Let's, let's say the second part, we don't know this, we're not coming to you saying, we've got the 5%. Subscribe and we'll tell you. That would be obnoxious. Although I'm sure there's plenty of that that you could easily go find. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speculating. I've seen it over and over again. The first part of the price is legwork. The second part of the price, we would argue, some sort of faith or... Um, uh, some sort of commitment to empiricism. 
We opened segment one with that quote from Russell about how empiricism is the least bad of our theories of knowledge. And that even the problems that we know empiricism has come from things that empiricism values or emphasizes or, or integrates carefully. So, part one, legwork. Part two, empiricism. And not just empiricism, but a commitment to it. Faith in it. You have to, you probably have to accept it. You're not going to get better than empiricism. But that's, we don't know that for sure. Last but not least, competition. They can't, they're, there just can't be a 5% out there and, and, and more than one smart person or group of people not looking for it. I mean, there's a book that has this 5% concept in it. We can't be the first people to notice this important idea. But I think it's, isn't it something that we all sort of sense that there's this 5% out there? Well, it's a moving target, right? The 5% today is not exactly the 5% tomorrow. Things have changed. You really want to know what's going on out there. It can't be what was going on out there yesterday or last year or last century. Moving target, competition. That's no joke. That's why we're reading Dulles. Hints. Hints about what's going on out there from somebody in a position to know, if not the incentive to tell us, but who presumably can't quite help himself but tell us some interesting things. Not interesting. Of course, interesting. Interesting is almost a problem. I mean, shiny objects are interesting. We're not looking for interesting. We're looking for what's going on out there. And hints from Dulles and from others. We want the 5%, and we're trying to pay the price. The segment is about problems of survival. Problems of survival against destruction by enemies by ourselves or fanatics amongst ourselves. Enemies we can think of as those who would exploit information and trust problems against us. And fanatics are those who would do anything to solve those problems, information and trust problems. They would even destroy the group's definition. We keep coming back to Angleton. He was kind of we don't know enough about him at Retrace to, to say this definitively, but others seem to think that he went way too far and basically ended up becoming the bad guy, even if he didn't mean to be. That's destruction by a fanatic. You let people like that run your, your team, then your team's not going to be what you signed up for. 
these problems of survival are based on Alan Dulles's The Craft of Intelligence, Chapter 15, Security in a Free Society. This is the fourth and final part of our series on that chapter. And Retrace works on the question, what's going on out there? With a point of departure, the concept of intelligence, which seems to have at least three parts, or kinds, natural, artificial, and strategic. And we're working on strategic intelligence, which is our term for espionage and its related activities. What do we mean by survival? What are, we, are we just talking about breathing? Well, that's obviously part of it. Let's say there are three, not levels, but elements that we're trying to preserve, that we want to survive. We need a, a handy way of remembering that when we talk about survival, we're not just talking about heartbeat and lungs. I mean, you can be brain dead and you can still be alive by some definition, by, by a reasonable definition. I mean, how many people are, you know, people come out of comas. I don't know if you count that as uh, brain death. I don't think you would medically, but I don't know. I'm not a physician. And lots of contra controversy there to be had as well with with uh, technologies, you know, advancing rapidly into the world of life and death. But we're not just talking about that. We need to remember that we're talking about life, which is to say breathing at least, uh, leisure, and legislation. Have you heard that before? Life, leisure, leisure and legislation? Of course you haven't. We're, we're using this little memorable triplet of L's uh, for, for the purpose of, of clarity. When we talk about survival, first, let's talk about life, the capacity to breathe, the capacity to think, and let's say the capacity to pursue satisfaction. You're not really alive even if you are breathing and thinking, if you don't want to do anything. That's, you're something else, and there's probably never been someone like that. Hopefully never been someone like that. Although you might think you know someone like that, and they can definitely seem that way on the couch or wherever they are right now. Life, the bare minimum. Leisure. Why leisure? Well, because you want time for doing things that aren't related to fending off death. In, presumably, our ancestors, I say presumably a lot because I have to remind you that I don't know for sure all these things that I claim are true. Presumably, our ancestors spent some of them, many of them, most of them, most of most e most of each li most of the number of lives. I'm not sure the best way to say that. Spent the entirety of their time on Earth, or so constituted, fending off death from the moment of birth. They're doing all the instinctive stuff so they don't get abandoned by their, their parents so that they don't fall to their deaths out of trees by reaching out and grabbing for branches, that instinct. They want, you know, our ancestors, they want cuddles. They want attention, food, and otherwise they just, uh, they do nothing. They can't do anything. We're all born prematurely because of our brain sizes. We had to be. It's complicated. Okay, but we don't want to spend our whole lives after those early years of helplessness fending off death with, in, in, in new ways or, or fending off new threats that emerge as we get older and more independent. 
But that is exactly how most creatures spend their time, and most of our ancestors did. Right? I mean, I wasn't there, but I'm. seems like a safe bet. You're either about to starve if you don't get up and go hunting or gathering. You're about to be eaten if you don't listen for that rustle in the bushes or sleep in shifts through the night. Uh, and you're, you're going to get fried like an egg if you walk out into the desert, even if you want to see what's on the other side of it. You're fending off death. Everything carries with it the risk of death. Well, we don't want that. We can do better than that. There's got to be time to play a guitar or something. Well, and sure enough, here we have it. Now, there are large groups on the earth who don't spend any time worrying about death. To a fault. <laughs> they drive around in cars and feel like they're safe when they're actually in more danger than if they were flying on a plane where they have anxiety. So we want leisure in addition to life. We want leisure to survive. What else do we want to survive? Legislation. Bet you didn't see that one coming. Hear me out. Let's use the word legislation as a symbol of representative government more broadly. We want... I, I, I'm saying we, but again, the problem with we recurs. So, I don't know what you want, dear listener. I know what we want. And I don't have to always explain who we is. It changes. It depends on the context. The context. We want an empire of laws and not of men. That's, um, that's an idea that comes from Harrington, who um, he was quoted by John Adams later, and most people quote John Adams, but um, he was writing 1600s. He was writing in 1656, the edition that I'm quoting from is 1887. It'll be in the show notes. Um, and he cites Aristotle and Livy for the idea, but he's the one who said it that way. The empire of laws and not of men. And he says that that's the de jour uh, version of what we think government is or what government should be. And then de facto is, you know... The opposite, an empire of men, not of laws. Well, we want an empire of laws, not of men. There was a, an interesting op-ed in the Financial Times today by Ash. Uh, what's his name? Don't know this guy. Well, I've got initials in front of me, TG. Oh, no, I don't. I've got it right here. Timothy. Garden Ash. He's a professor of European studies at Oxford and a Hoover Institution senior fellow. He, um, he talked a little bit about rules. The title of the op-ed is uh, Hearts Don't Beat Faster for the Rules-Based International Order, which he says should be banished from the upcoming speeches at the UN General Assembly. He says this starting on Tuesday. I take his word for it. He says the rules-based international System is actually the phrase that he uses. The, the The title has order, but he says RBIS is the is the acronym that for this lame phrase that doesn't inspire anything and is not even really true. Is the point of his, or not really completely true, is the point of his op-ed. But um, in that op-ed, he says this: an underlying value or principle 
takes precedence over arbitrary rules, which are often the product of messy, bureaucratic, diplomatic, and political compromise. Such rules should not be confused with international law, which a UK minister this week outrageously, foolishly, and unacceptably said his government will break in a specific and limited way. International law has a very high value and must be upheld. But if what we mean by rules is actually law, then we should say law, a stronger, simpler, and more precise word. I just like that. I wanted to mention that. I don't know who he's talking, what UK ministers said we're going to break the law in a specific and limited way, but well done. Way to get yourself quoted forever. All right. Um, slight digression. We want an empire of laws, not of men. Those are the three L's of survival. Life leisure and legislation, according to us. Surely it can be improved. We talked yesterday about problems of trust, contrived leaks, betrayals, and before that we talked about problems of information, careless leaks and giveaways. These are the labels given by Alan Dulles in his chapter 15. If giveaways and careless leaks are your team's information problems and contrived leaks and betrayals are your team's trust problems, what can we say about solutions? We can say that the problems need to be mitigated at least. But we can also say that totally solving them is logically impossible. This might be obvious to you, it might not. At every moment, an individual mind might be changing. If it changes in certain ways the team will have new information problems or trust problems because minds, by definition, are continuously changing. Totally solving these problems is logically impossible. We have a hint of totalitarian logic burgeoning from this train of thought. If only we could stop minds from changing. Who's we? Well, the team's leader, the team's owner's, team's rulers, if only we could stop minds from changing, we could totally solve these information and trust problems. Or maybe we just need to stop them from changing in certain ways, in wrong ways. Well, the only way to stop minds from changing at all is to destroy them. This is why it's logically impossible to solve information and trust problems, because Destroyed minds can't do anything, including problematic things like leaks, giveaways, and betrayals. It brings to mind kinetic warfare. Killing and kinetic warfare are sometimes done by the good guys who have run out of ideas but are yet determined to survive. But the ways to stop minds from changing in certain ways... now. There are many of those. Think of propaganda, rhetoric, fear, inspiration, norms, laws, and hiding certain bits of information, let's say 5% of it, while endlessly broadcasting the rest. So 
so much for solutions to the information and trust problems. Let's talk about spies. That is, after all, the centerpiece idea around which Dulles and we are currently, Dulles always and we are currently revolving. What did Alan Dulles want us to know? And what hints can we derive from what he wrote or what he and his group wrote about what Christopher Andrew calls the secret world? What hints can we derive? Well, remember, what Dulles wants us to know is not necessarily what we want to know. He has things that he cares about at any given time. He might want us to know something in 1963, but in 1953, he would never have wanted us to know that. Or he might not even have known it himself. He's, he and, and, and or his group were publishing in 63, writing in the year or years before that. What did he want us to know? And what hints can we derive? Well, we've talked a lot about the, some of the excerpts and details from the chapter, but let's recap. To be done with it. Let's recap. So the basic problem, according to Dulles, is that free people want to be free, and that includes free to say what they want and to know what they want. And the problem with that is that too much of it, either too much talking or too much knowing, can be bad or dangerous to those free people. That's point number one. Point number two, it's wasteful to spend money on keeping our secrets while also spending money on revealing them. Now, I should say that there are counterpoints to all of these, all of these uh, points, but we're not going to go through them, or we're not going to exhaust them. Point number three, there are four major sub-problems. Giveaways. For example, the government publishing lots of details about itself. Careless leaks, people talking to reporters or spies and saying things they shouldn't be saying because they don't realize how valuable that information is. Contrived leaks, when someone tries to go over someone's head or get something done by selectively leaking uh, secret information or privileged information to a reporter or anybody. And finally, betrayals, the stuff we're familiar with, spies and... Turncoats. Point number four, our founding documents in the United States, that's the we in this context, our founding documents seem to make it impossible to fix this loop, this spending money to keep secrets and then spending money to reveal them and the four major sub-problems therein. But I, Dulles, Dulles, I, Dulles, think we can improve the situation without breaking our founding documents or our founding ideas. Here's how. Have lots of frank discussions. Don't publicize superfluous military details. Don't make, uh, don't make prosecution of espionage cases so difficult. Enact something like the British D-notice system. That's a law in Britain that it's not called D-notice. It's, called, it's, got, it's a longer acronym now, but it was in the 60s when he wrote um, that – I think it stands for defense notice, but basically newspapers – work uh, in in a select group with the government to um, to vet stories that might have a national security component and 
And Dulles says it works pretty well, and Britain's close enough to the United States that we should look to them as an example of how you can preserve your founding documents and ideals uh, and still do a better job of solving these intelligence problems. So enact something like the British D-notice system. Um, next, improve our vetting of personnel. And he goes into quite some detail about how it has been done, how it could be done, and all the problems therein. Next is make more things secret because we can and do keep secrets. This is an easily overlooked point. The director of central intelligence, the godfather of the CIA, Alan Dulles, says more than once, in, in this chapter, I think he says it, and I know he says it at least once, maybe twice, and then he says it in an interview, the NBC interview that I previously mentioned, called The Science of Spying. Go check it out. Um, I'll put that in the, in the references. Science of Spying. Uh, he says, we do keep secrets. And he doesn't just mean me and my buddies. He's talking about Congress. Uh, he, gives, he gives the example of the, um, of the Manhattan Project. But he's clearly not just talking about that. And that is an easily overlooked and important point because of the misconception, the widely held misconception about espionage and conspiracy that secrets can't be kept. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Well, the director of central intelligence thinks they can. And he worries a lot about leaks, or he did when he was writing this. Or he wanted us to think he worries about them. We don't really know what he worries about because we can't read his thoughts. Make more things secret because we can and do keep secrets. And finally, he says, be more careful with our overseas installations. Be more like China. More like Russia, but more like China especially. He really was impressed. No, was it China? Yeah, I think it was the Chinese installation in Iran. I'll have to look that up in the chapter. But um, Okay, so those are his... Recommendations. Final point of the chapter, openness is an inherent weakness in free societies, and we have to compensate for it. This is a fact of life, he says. Spies. Spy master, Alan Dulles. You know, they say that espionage is the Second oldest profession. But actually, I heard a good point uh, made by, I don't remember who, um, that it's actually, it must be the oldest profession because in order to go to that other profession, you have to have an address, a phone number, names. Where do you get those? Intelligence. Let's recap. We are all players on various kinds of teams. And some of our teams are more important to us than others. As individuals, we want both ourselves and our teams to survive. Life, leisure, and legislation is what we offer to you as a handy reminder. We don't want to just keep breathing, but to keep and improve the kind of life we've inherited or built on top of that breathing. One with some free time and with freedom from tyranny. From the writings of Dulles, or the team writing in his name, we've gleaned some information about how strategic intelligence contributes to teams' survival by confronting problems of information and trust, among other things. 
We were looking for hints. Maybe we got some, some of the 5% about what's going on out there. We want the 5% because we want survival. Life, leisure, and legislation, we want that. It's probably going to take the 5% to maximize our likelihood of getting it. The price, we think, is legwork, faith in empiricism, and competition, or you might say teamwork. That concludes our series on Dulles' Chapter 15, Security in a Free Society. So much for strategic intelligence for now. Next, artificial intelligence. This is Retrace. References from today's show will be in the show notes, in the RSS feed, and elsewhere. Full notes are at our website, retrace.com, R-E-T-R-A-I-C-E dot com. This is segment, segment number five.